Hello and welcome to the political history of the United States. Episode 4.13, The Circular Letter. I want to start out this week by making a quick correction from our last episode. Throughout that last episode, I referred to the work of John Dickinson as the letters from a Pennsylvania farmer. Now, this is generally how I've heard it shortened down, and is indeed what I will likely continue to call it moving forward. However, after publishing the episode, it occurred to me that in no place do I ever use the actual name of the work. Dickinson's pamphlet is actually called Letters from a Farmer in Pennsylvania. Nothing else about the episode changes, but I did want to make that note and apologize for my oversight. So, sorry about that. In the first several months that followed in the wake of the Townsend Acts, there was little more than annoyed grumblings from the colonists. Well, certainly nobody was thrilled about having new restrictions. Nobody seemed all that interested in doing much of anything about it. As the calendar turned over from 1767 to 1768, however, the collective malaise finally began to lift. Both somewhat surprisingly and unsurprisingly, the first real machinations towards attacking the Townsend Acts came out of Massachusetts. On the one hand, this follows everything that we have talked about thus far. We have seen time and time again that Massachusetts, and in particular Boston, have been on the leading edge of the response to the British imperial policies. However, in response to the Townsend Acts, there had not been that energetic response that we had seen when it came to the Stamp Act. There were no riots, houses were not torn down brick by brick, and there was very little in the way of effigy burning. In fact, the colony failed to even push through a non-importation agreement rather making some weak agreements to reduce consumption of a handful of unimporting goods. The response was meaningless and everybody knew it. So, obviously, the first question that we need to address here is looking at why the winds had shifted. As it turned out, not everybody was thrilled about the initial response of the assembly. Well, Governor Bernard was breathing a deep sigh of relief that he was not having to deal with a repeat of the Stamp Act. Samuel Adams was busy writing. In January, the Massachusetts Assembly sent a letter directly to Lord Shelburne, as well as to the King, to protest the Townsend Acts. The letter that was sent to London was sent to men who were believed to have sympathies towards the American position, which means that they were generally in favor of the repeal of the Stamp Act. Looking specifically at the letter sent to Shelburne, we really do not see this being a radical departure from what we have seen time and time again already by this point. Penned by Samuel Adams, the letter to Shelburne begins with a reminder of the reasons for their immigration in the first place. It moves quickly to a reminder that they, the colonists, had been active participants during the Glorious Revolution. From there, the letter lays out the standard arguments to the colonists having all those same rights as the Englishmen back on the home island. Adams writes that, The spirit of the law of nature and nations, suppose, that all the free subjects of any kingdom are entitled equally to all the rights of the Constitution, 
For it appears unnatural and unreasonable to affirm that local or any other circumstances can justly deprive any part of the subjects of the same prince of the full enjoyment of the rights of that constitution upon which the government itself is formed, and by which sovereignty and allegiance are ascertained and limited. From there, Adams moves through and explains that, despite comments to the contrary, the Townsend Act is indeed a tax. He moves through his argument and concludes by asking Shelburne to support their cause and advocate for the repeal of the Townsend duties. The letter to the king follows much the same path as the letter to Shelburne, with the major difference being that it is both shorter and does not go nearly as far in scope as the letter to Shelburne did. The colonists did not hide their prerogative, but clearly did choose their language carefully. The letter to the king includes a whole lot of language promising the king that he was still their guy, and that they were still indeed loyal. The petition does not beat the dead horse nearly as much about their rights, but rather appeals to the king for him to protect his subjects from the machinations of a now wayward parliament. In other words, the colonists let the king know that they were loyal, and as such, it was his job to jump in and save the day. Possibly more important than the contents of the letter is that they completely bypassed Governor Francis Bernard. He had no idea that they were sending these petitions, and upon discovery of said petitions, he was not amused. To this point, Bernard has taken kind of a muted role. Although he has been in our story for a while, he had not really become the focus of the colonists. That is not to say that those in Boston love the guy. However, during the Stamp Act riots, their ire fell towards Andrew Oliver and Thomas Hutchinson, rather than onto Governor Bernard. For his part, Bernard went so far as to blame the rioting on class conflict and deflect blame away from the British imperial policy. From this point forward, however, Bernard is going to decide that he really did miss out on the fund during the Stamp Act and will work hard at gaining his own enmity from the colonists. Francis Bernard is, in part, an interesting figure because he had at least some sympathy for the colonies. What Bernard envisioned was colonies that were more directly tied into Great Britain. He was no fan of the idea of American independence and envisioned a system where the Americans did have representation in Parliament. His view was simple. If the Americans want to make all this noise about their rights as British citizens, give them exactly what they are asking for and honor those rights. We, as did Bernard, know that the Americans really had zero interest in having representation in Parliament. Pretty much everything that the colonists wrote pointed out their right to representation before they got it out there that such representation was impractical to the point of becoming impossible. The real goal was always recognition of the existing colonial assemblies. Well, Bernard was less inclined towards that potential outcome. He did advocate colonial representation in Parliament, which was a lot more than many of the others in power were in favor of. With petitions and letters flying about, we get to the core issue for today's episode. 
Specifically, what exactly was the circular letter? Well, Samuel Adams and company were busy sending letters to, hopefully, sympathetic ears back in London. He was also busy working on a letter to be distributed amongst the colonies as well. Now, to be clear, we are still talking about January 1768, so we are just a few months past the colony's failure to respond meaningfully to the previous fall's announcement of the Townsend Acts. Among the critical differences, however, was that between their first attempt and now, the often unpredictable James Otis took yet another surprise swing. Back in the fall, Otis had, surprisingly, not been in favor of a non-importation agreement, nor really anything at all. However, now that we are in January, Otis had once again swung back to the other direction and had reasserted himself as the leader of the popular faction. It was therefore Otis and Adams that would pen the circular letter. The circular letter was a letter that was meant to be circulated throughout all of the colonies, with the stated intent of creating a united response. It had been lost on nobody, just how much a, more or less, unified response had dictated events during the Stamp Act crisis. Otis and Adams both realized the collective power that the colonies held and understood the importance of recapturing that. This brings us to the all-important question of what exactly was contained in the circular letter. First and foremost, nothing about the circular letter really changes our narrative. There is nothing groundbreaking in the letter, nothing that we have not yet discussed. In this way, the letter was absolutely a cautious response to the ongoing crisis. The letter begins with a call to all the colonial assemblies, reminding them that they were really all in this together. The Townsend Acts did not affect a single colony, but rather all of them. As such, it made the most sense that the colonies act in harmony with one another. The first full paragraph is truly the most important of the entire work, in that it shows the growing unity between the colonies. A unity that just a decade before truly was not something that was on the table. Now, however, men like Otis and Adams had come to realize the power of that unity. From there, the letter turns to the question of rights. This really is the very same thing that we have been talking about for weeks now. Per the letter, Parliament is the supreme legislative power over the whole empire. That in all free states, the Constitution is fixed, and as the supreme legislative derives its power and authority from the Constitution, it cannot overleap the bounds of it without destroying its own foundation. If you have been following along, there is nothing particularly innovative about this argument. It acknowledges that, well, yes, Parliament is the sovereign power over the empire. That body is still limited by the Constitution. Among those rights promised are that nothing can be taken from an individual without their due consent. The letter makes clear that this is a natural and constitutional right. The letter, having clarified these restrictions upon Parliament, expresses the frustration that the Townsend Acts were passed with the express purpose of raising a revenue. 
Such an act was against their constitutional and natural rights as British citizens. They also make sure to point out here that as a result of the immense distance between the colonies and Great Britain, representation was impossible. The letter does go a bit further in regards to payments for colonial governors and officials. This had been something of a lingering issue. The concern is that by divorcing the salaries of these officials from the colonies, it put them at significant risk. As the situation stood, should a royal governor step out of bounds, the colonial assemblies still had the power to withhold their salaries. This essentially acted as a safety mechanism for the colonies to prevent a rogue governor from asserting arbitrary power. The letter would conclude by quickly touching on a few of the other major complaints of the colonists, ranging from questions surrounding quartering to the appointment of customs commissioners. The letter concludes, once again, by appealing to the colonies at large. Importantly, the letter makes clear that this is not meant to take the lead or to dictate events. Rather, the purpose of the letter was to act as a launching point for the other colonies to respond. The letter openly states that nothing from the circular letter is meant to dictate a course of action to the other colonies. The letter concludes by stating that they freely submit their opinions to the judgment of others and shall take it in kind in your house to point out to them anything further that may be thought necessary. With the circular letter now complete, it was presented to the Massachusetts Assembly, where it was promptly voted down. Really, the initial vote was not even all that close. When Otis and Adams presented the letter, it was rejected by a two-to-one majority. So, what gives? Why was the letter so soundly defeated? It seems to come down to bad timing more than anything else. The rejection came almost immediately after the colonists had sent their letters to Shelburne and the king. In the eyes of many of the representatives from smaller towns, towns where the impact of the towns and duties were hardly felt, that petition was enough. Despite the momentary setback, it really was just that. Momentary. Two weeks later, Otis and Adams made another attempt to get the letter adopted, which it was, much to the very considerable chagrin of Governor Bernard. This, of course, begs the question of what exactly happened to completely reverse the vote in such a short amount of time. Well, there certainly was some politicking being done by Otis and especially Adams, it seems here that the real culprit is that they had taken a page directly out of the Patrick Henry playbook. Recall how Henry got the Virginia resolutions passed, basically by arguing it when most of the House of Burgesses had gone home at the end of the session. It was the end of the session in February, and people were ready to go home. Especially those who were not from Boston. As people from the small towns packed up and left, thinking that their business was completed, the house grew increasingly liberal. Those from small towns tended to be more conservative, especially considering that they had experienced minimal effects from the Townsend Acts. Once they had all filtered out, the letter was reintroduced and the circular letter was passed. 
the circular letter that was passed and was now to be distributed to all the colonies was not radical or revolutionary. As we discussed a few moments ago, it recognized Parliament's position as being the supreme authority, though the letter does quickly limit that power through the use of the constitutional constraints. The circular letter does not go as far as some of the more radical positions that were in their infancy regarding Parliament either having total power or none at all. The radicalism of the circular letter, as with the other documents of that era, came not from the actual text, but rather from extending the logic to its conclusion. As historian Theodore Draper explains it in his book, A Struggle for Power, if the circular letter is arguing that the colonial founders and subsequent generations had consented to their relationship with Great Britain, they could just as easily end that relationship if they chose to revoke their consent. This point may not have been really circulating in the colonies just yet, but across the Atlantic back in London, it had become a very serious concern. Before we move forward and address just how the other colonies did respond to the circular letter, I want to clarify why we are taking so much time moving through all the different declarations and petitions. We have spent significant amounts of time since the Stamp Act, considering the language being used by the colonists in their arguments back to Parliament. One of the primary things that I'm working towards here is establishing how the thinking was changing between 1765 and 1775. There was no independence movement at all in 1765, other than maybe a few drunken ramblings in taverns. Practically, though, that simply was not something that was at all meaningfully in play. However, just a decade after Patrick Henry wrote the Virginia Resolves, the War of Independence would be underway. By the time that we reached the biggest pamphlet of the era, Thomas Paine's Common Sense in January 1776, I want to be sure that we can look back and trace the evolving political thoughts in the colonies to help us understand how the entire situation came unraveled so quickly. The response in the other colonies towards the circular letter was at times mixed, though for the most part it was positively received. Virginia actually decided that the right move was to exceed the contents of the Massachusetts letter. In Virginia, Governor Francis Fauquier had been doing everything in his power for a while now to avoid needing to call the House of Burgesses to assemble. Fakir had grown increasingly concerned about the direction that the House was heading. Following his death, he was replaced by John Blair, who did call the House of Burgesses to assemble over problems with local Indians. This would prove to be a fateful decision, as the Speaker of the House of Burgesses, Peter Randolph, immediately took up the circular letter. The House of Burgesses, still falling in line with tradition, accepted the power of Parliament to control trade. The House then suggested that they were equivalent in power to the Parliament, though obviously more limited in total scope of that power to colonial affairs. Where Virginia really did move past Massachusetts, and frankly, past the then-prevailing sentiment, is that the letter made a thinly-veiled appeal to the colonies. 
that resistance, including violent resistance, may be necessary. Ultimately, the Massachusetts letter is going to be the far more remembered of the two. However, the Virginia letter does clarify that, despite the more moderate temperature of the colonies, as compared to 1765, there are still those looking for a more energetic response. The other colony that I want to bring up briefly here is Pennsylvania, who actually decided to punt on the question of the circular letter. The primary reason for this is that Pennsylvania was busy trying to make nice to Parliament in 1768. The colony had, for a while now, been trying to oust the Penn family from the proprietorship and obtain a royal charter. I've mentioned this before because really, the most critical thing to come out of this is that it just so happened to place Benjamin Franklin in London for a large amount of the imperial crisis. Franklin was no fan of the Penn family, and was indeed the leader of the movement to get them pushed into the proverbial dustbin of history. Seeing as how Pennsylvania was advocating for a royal charter, the last thing that they wanted to do was upset the powers back in London. As the circular letter was making its rounds, back in Massachusetts, Governor Bernard was not at all a happy camper. The main problem for Bernard is that he was really catching grief from everybody right about now. On the one hand, the colonists had completely bypassed him. Nobody had sought his opinion or even run the circular letter by him. In fact, nobody had really done anything at all to even acknowledge his existence. This was not the first time that this had happened either. Earlier today, we had talked about the fact that the letter to Shelburne and the king had also been done without even a mere acknowledgement of Bernard. So, at this moment, Bernard is really not feeling great about himself. He is, in theory, the boss in the colony. However, at this moment, nobody really much seems to care. Of course, though, we know that Bernard has his own bosses that he has to answer to. Secretary Hillsborough, upon learning of the circular letter, was not at all amused by the contents. Back in Britain, there already was significant concern that there was a growing independence movement in America. The circular letter, therefore, was taken to be yet another direct challenge towards parliamentary authority. The colonists were calling for colonial unity while at the same time arguing about the limitations placed on Parliament. For a people growing ever more paranoid about the prospect of an American independence movement, the circular letter was just pouring gasoline on the fire. During the winter and into the spring of 1768, Governor Bernard was having a really rough time. Things were made much worse internally as the faction in Massachusetts had awoken from their slumber, and, with a resurgent James Otis Jr. at its head, set their eyes squarely upon Bernard. Beginning in March of 1768, the faction began their assault on both Governor Bernard and the customs officials who had arrived back in November from London. When the customs officials had arrived, they did so on Guy Fawkes Day, which, even in the best of times, 
was a day where some petty rioting and drunkenness was pretty much what you did. But other than some angry chanting and some hurled insults, which probably did make the officials nervous, nothing much really happened. Considering the mob violence that had defined the Massachusetts response to the Stamp Act, Governor Bernard had to be feeling pretty good at the lack of any violent greeting to the customs officials. The entire battle between the governor and the House began when Otis accused Bernard of misrepresenting conditions to the ministry back home. To prove this, the House demanded that Bernard turn over copies of his correspondence with Hillsborough to prove that he was lying about the state of things. Predictably, Bernard was not about to turn over his correspondence to what he viewed as the local rabble. James Otis and Samuel Adams were counting on this refusal and turned it to their own devices. They took their response to Joseph Warren, a local doctor and future revolutionary who published a scathing article in the Boston Gazette. The article went so far as accusing the governor of being related to the devil. Warren, knowing that he was probably skirting a pretty fine line of libel, never explicitly stated Bernard's name, though there was never any doubt who the article was talking about. In a response to the suggestion that he had been talking about Governor Bernard in the original article, on March 7th, Warren removed virtually all doubt when he clarified that, well, pretty much everybody seems to read into the letter, that he was talking about Governor Bernard, and that while he certainly would never do that, people were free to read into his comments what they would. To call the article by Warren even a thinly-veiled attack on Bernard would be a stretch. This was a direct assault. Bernard, not wanting to take this lying down, decided that he wanted to go ahead and prosecute for libel. Now, it is really hard figuring out exactly what Governor Bernard was thinking here. Yes, he probably had been libeled, and yeah, it is understandable that he would be pretty upset by this fact. However, Bernard had a whole lot of forces working against him here. First, the council wanted absolutely nothing to do with this, so the job of considering the prosecution fell to the House. The House, which was at that point being led by the faction. The faction itself being led by men like James Otis Jr. and Samuel Adams, who had Warren write the article in the first place. However, even if we look past this baffling decision, as we talked about back in episode 3.19, the colonies were never terribly anxious to convict on a libel case in the best of times. The chances of Bernard getting anything that he wanted here were essentially non-existent. Surprise, surprise, the House was not ever going to do anything with these charges. Just for some added fun, Thomas Hutchinson decided to wade into the water and ordered that the colony's attorney general present a bill to the grand jury. The grand jury, also very unsurprisingly, declined to pursue charges. As all of this is going on, Joseph Warren continued his attacks in the Boston Gazette as Governor Bernard was left seething. With Governor Bernard now politically bleeding, it turns out that the customs commissioners decided that they also felt left out 
and that it was time for them to jump into the whole melee as well. Wanting to make their own big statement, the commissioners decided to target the wealthy Boston merchant and the holder of oversized signatures, John Hancock. Hancock was born in 1737 Braintree, and by the time of the Imperial Crisis, had become one of the wealthiest citizens in all of the colonies. Hancock had annoyed the customs officials when he had refused to allow a small militia that he controlled from participating in a welcome event for the commissioners. Later, Hancock blew off an official dinner on account of the customs commissioner's presence. Feeling insulted by the slight, the officials looked into an incident where Hancock had refused to allow two customs officials from going below deck on his ship, the Lydia. Hancock argued with the officials that they had no right to go below deck without essentially a search warrant. The customs officials saw their opportunity and requested that the Attorney General file criminal charges against Hancock. The problem is that the Attorney General was not feeling this and stated that the customs officials did indeed exceed their authority and declined to file the charges. The entire ordeal with the Lydia is important for a few reasons. Perhaps most importantly, it gives us insight into the minds of the British during the spring of 1768. Both in the case of Bernard and the customs officials after him, they both chose to fight losing battles when the losses were plainly clear to begin with. In an appeal to the Treasury Board back in Britain following their loss to Hancock, the commissioners made their point clear. They were less concerned about the actual ability to collect the duty. That was a secondary issue by this point. The problem was not John Hancock's action in preventing the officials from going into the hold of the Lydia. It was the defiance of royal authority that was the real problem. John Hancock was in line with men like Samuel Adams and James Otis. He was one of the people who was causing them so much grief. The commissioners made clear to the Treasury Board that the prosecution of Hancock was a matter of reinforcing British prerogative more than it was ever about the collection of some duty. By the spring of 1768, this was not an unpopular idea in Britain. To say that there was frustration towards the colonies was an understatement. British leadership had long been concerned that what was happening in America was an outright independence movement. Acquiescing to the whims of the Americans, regardless of the reasons for such accommodation, was tantamount to encouraging their behavior. The British had, in the wake of the Stamp Act, made a bold statement of parliamentary supremacy through the Declaratory Act. During the spring and summer of 1768, they were determined to enforce that authority. This is reflected in the British response to learning about the circular letter. In a letter from Denny's de Burt, the Massachusetts agent in London, the frustrations of Parliament are plainly clear to see. He says that some of the comments he was hearing is that the circular letter was, in essence, an incentive for the colonists to rebel. This was not an isolated feeling either. DeBert claimed that Hillsborough had informed him that North and the Ministry 
already had plans to move forward and repeal the Townsend Acts. On its surface, this might be a bit surprising. However, remember that there was never universal support for the Townsend Acts among the other members of the ministry. William Pitt had long been anxious to kick Townsend out of the ministry. With Townsend now dead, the process of reversing his acts seemed much easier. The problem was, however, that the circular letter had changed the equation. DeBert writes that Hillsborough no longer believed, however, that North could repeal the Townsend duties. Hillsborough made clear that the position that had come to dominate Parliament in response to the American affairs was that Parliament must be obeyed. The Declaratory Act had been passed for a reason, and they could not just look the other way. The instructions from Hillsborough to Governor Bernard were explicitly clear. If the circular letter was not withdrawn, then the Assembly was to be dissolved. As we will discuss next time, this order is going to reach Governor Bernard at the worst possible time imaginable. Benjamin Franklin, in a letter to Joseph Galloway from January 1769, nicely lays out the situation. Franklin discusses that the majority in Parliament did not really care for the Townsend Acts. They found that the Acts were contrary to commercial and political principles, and that they hurt both the American colonies and Great Britain alike. However, what had really emerged was a question over British national honor. The real crux of the issue was not the acts. Everybody could agree that those needed to go. Per Franklin, the British could not bear allowing the idea that Parliament lacked the right to make laws in the first place. Benjamin Franklin states that this had taken on dimensions of being a matter of national security for the British. The British had to prove that they were the masters of their colonies. Should that question come into doubt, it would undermine them internationally. Franklin goes further and explains to Galloway the position that this had put Great Britain in. He mentions that the British also had to temper their response enough to prevent a full rupture from taking place, something that their enemies would be quick to take advantage of. The British fully believed that they existed in a precarious spot. They feared the repercussions from giving into colonial demands that could further advance the crisis, something that their enemies could then readily use against them. On the other hand, they knew that pushing too far could lead to an even deeper rift. Of course, we know that British fears here are not without merit. In less than a decade's time, this is going to be exactly what happens. There is going to be a full rupture, and indeed the enemies of the British are going to use the situation to their advantage. For the British, it would have made things far easier had the Americans objected to the Townsend Acts as being bad for business. Parliament agreed with that assessment. Had the Americans focused on the numbers and fought based upon those grounds, Parliament could easily go back and correct a simple mistake on the basis that it was bad for the business of the empire. However, because the Americans fought on the hill that their rights were being violated, acquiescing to their arguments risked diminishing parliamentary supremacy in the colonies. 
this was not the first time that the British had faced pushback to imperial policies. The final decades of the 17th century had been full of uprisings and rebellions. None of those had been as dangerous as the current situation. The circular letter is evidence that the colonies were doing the most dangerous thing to the British Empire possible. They were forming a tighter union. This is going to continue to grow in the years to come. And it is going to be the strengthening of these bonds between the colonies that will ultimately make the American Revolution possible. In the prior rebellions of the 17th century, there were varying degrees of regional cooperation, be it in New England or the Chesapeake. But there had never been a greater union of all the North American colonies. Recall that there had been at least feelers put out during Bacon's Rebellion to Massachusetts to form a more united response. Feelers that Massachusetts quickly shot down. Unlike in those situations back in the 17th century, the British were now having to deal with the very real risk that came from the colonies acting in a manner that was far more united than we have ever seen them act before. Back in Boston, following the custom commissioner's defeat at the hands of John Hancock, you might be tempted to think that they would slink away, at least for the moment, to lick their wounds. Certainly, one would hope that the ordeal of the spring, plus the three years before it, would have taught them a lesson about how to proceed. Yet, as we are going to see, the commissioners apparently had learned nothing. Next time, those customs commissioners decide that they are not yet done with John Hancock. This time, however, their attention is not on the Lydia, but rather the Liberty. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you back here next time as we watch those British commissioners choose the hill that they are almost literally willing to die on.